All right, so you're a music artist with plans to take over the world, huh? Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. Well, let us show you someone just like you. Welcome to the I Am Northbound Podcast. Podcast. Your guide to dominating the new music industry. Hey, what is up, y'all? It's Jason here, and welcome to a brand new show that I'm doing here on the I Am Northbound channel called the I Am Northbound Showcase. So just really quickly, because today's episode is already long enough as it is, we just chatted for so long. So this new type of show is to showcase specific music artists that I run into along my journey that I think have a story that I think you listeners need to hear. Like it's someone out there doing exactly what you're doing, trying to change the world and the lives of their listeners with their music. And they're doing it in a really incredible way. So some weeks I'm going to be talking to music artists who are killing it. Uh, sometimes I'm going to be talking to music artists who are still establishing, but have done something really interesting that I think everyone needs to hear. Other times I'll be talking to music artists who are veterans, who have been around forever and have watched you know the music industry shift in front of their eyes and talk to them about their perspective. And sometimes I'll be interviewing people that have nothing to do with being a music artist, but people I think can bring an entirely new perspective to the podcast and to your lives. So you can not just think like a music artist, but think outside as well. So anyway, let's dive straight into today's episode. I talked to a good friend of mine, Trent from Hands Like Houses. He's seen the industry shift in front of his eyes over the last 10 years and they've adapted in some really cool ways. So without further ado, let's get straight into that. So welcome to the first ever episode of, I guess it's called I Am Northbound Showcase. I don't know. I'm probably going to go with that title, but Specifically, this isn't the first one I've recorded, but I want this to be the first one because I want to talk to one of my good friends who's been through the music industry pretty much his whole life and he's got a ton of stories to tell. I mean, maybe we'll have to do a couple episodes because I'm sure you could fill them. <laughs> but like you were introduced, uh, like to introduce you guys to Trenton, you might have seen uh, him and I work together on things in the past if you've been around for a long time. But for those who are new and uh, who don't know about you, what would you, how would you explain what you've been up to? Uh, well, I sing for a band called Hands Like Houses. Um, have been doing for, yeah, about ten and a half years now, um, which is pretty crazy to think about. It's like a third of my life. That's um, great. But, yeah, I've been kind of doing that. We've been, um, yeah, kind of up and down all over the place with uh, kind of experience, kind of all levels of music, which has been pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, still, still kicking, still alive, and still um, I think we've kind of moved into a kind of a cool – stable phase of our career which is nice it's been pretty chaotic for a long time but um yeah we're like all setting up to kind of stabilize and just chill out a little bit and then uh, virus happens and <laughs> change <laughs> change so the much world more time, yeah. so much more time on our hands but it's good yeah so over that 10 years that you've been involved in the music industry you would have seen it go through different shifts and cycles so today i was thinking that the uh, insight you could give is how a band like yourself who established themselves in a different industry have adapted to the current changes and how you're embracing social media and, uh, and, and modifying your approach to social media. So if we can take it back to the beginning, just quickly, to sure. how would you, what would you say is one of the biggest defining factors in the growth and success that you guys have had? What, what was responsible mostly for that? I think it's been the shift from, um, the, the biggest thing we've noticed has been the shift from recorded music um, through to streaming. Um, so obviously I'm talking more about like physical stuff, but I mean, we were right at the end of like the physical era. So, um, you know, for our first two albums that we released in 2012 and 2013, I think it was, um, they both had uh, very much measured like by first week sales. That was the biggest kind of indicator of um, what, 
how successful we were to our label and to, I guess, the industry at that point. Um, and we did pretty well in that regard, um, especially for a baby band. So, um, yeah, that was the biggest shift is just kind of seeing things shift away from that kind of, you know, piracy had been around for a while before that, but we were kind of, I guess, at a, at a stage where it just hadn't quite shifted from an album-based mentality to more of like just a stream and content-based mentality. Um, and we did not do a good job of keeping up with it, I don't think. We tried a few things that didn't work and kind of, I think, got even got jaded a little bit through the middle there, but I think mm-hmm. we're kind of hitting, you know, hitting a phase where I guess we're kind of really starting to understand how things are working. We've tried not to jump in on the latest trend of any particular, I don't know, system or strategy. Um, we've just tried to kind of sit back, see how it happens and then try and average out the curve and, and we're in a really like compared to a lot of bands that have kind of been around a lot as long as we have we have we're um we're actually in a pretty sustainable position right now better than most which is pretty cool so that's really good yeah because i feel like a lot of people think that as the industry has shifted they see people Mm. that jump on trends and fads and they think that in some way to keep up with the new music industry means to lose some form of dignity and i don't feel like that needs Mm. to be like that you're right you just need to observe see what's working not just be a trend hopper of someone who mm. just moves across whatever they think is what will make them successful and find the actual real authenticity in that, which is really cool. Um, yeah. be, to take it back even further than that, what uh, you you said you were a band for two years and then you got signed mm. to a record label or something like that. How did you guys go even about that process? Was someone listening out there thinking that that might be their path? Sure. Um, I mean, for us, we basically wrote a bunch of songs, like a small handful of songs. I think we originally planned to record an EP. Um, this is around 2009-ish. Um, we'd kind of been together for about 12 months and, you know, we had a couple of songs and we recorded it, um, in Australia at a studio in Sydney and, um, it came out all right. I think we did that classic rookie band thing of just like, oh yeah, we can totally record four songs in three days. That's a great idea. (laughs) And we like ended up with these like really cool half done demos because we were just, you know, it's funny because, like, we were, like, what, 19, 20, 21. Like, you'd think that at that age you think, yeah, we've got this figured out, we've got this down, and then you look back and you're like, man, we were so naive. But yeah. anyway, um, but we did that whole thing. We had a, a rough kind of handful of demos. Nah, well, you know, they, they didn't really – they weren't up to scratch because they just we didn't dedicate enough time to any particular song. Um, but we thought, well – for what it costs, like this is post GFC, mind you. So the Australian dollar was actually killing it because we avoided the recession. So it was actually pretty much on par with the US. So it worked out cheaper for us to go to America and record right. our EP over there than it would be to send the same, same amount of time here in Australia at the time because wow. studios were cheaper per day over there because Australia was pretty, um, uh, I would say monopolized, but like particularly yeah. in our industry and in our kind of pocket of genre, I suppose, um, you know, rock and punk and metal and hardcore that sort of little world there was only a tiny handful of studios in australia so they they were doing pretty well that particular place so um yeah just and just kind of through recording in the u.s um we kind of just happened to like you know the the producer we worked with worked with the label worked out with rise records a lot on a lot of their bands um that was part of the reason we went over there was because you know we liked a lot of the bands that had been going through and um yeah that, that kind of just became our foot in the door um you know crossed I guess our music came across the right people in the right time and um, right. kind of had a few, I guess it's all just been kind of a, you know, knock on effect from there. 
from the, like net, net from networking networking opportunities. I'm trying to say, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Interesting to hear that because I was uh, I was thinking about that now. Like how much of considering the shift in the industry, if you were to form your band today, would you take that same path or would you do something differently? Uh, hard to say. I mean, everything I know since, hell no, we wouldn't because that wouldn't work. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think yeah. that could happen for a band now. Um, you don't quite seem to have those cult producers the same way because, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to happen like that mm -hmm. now. Um, it did then. It was a very kind of, you know, emo was exploding and just seemed yeah. like everyone was within that, you know, that same little very narrow stream. So um, there was like a really strong kind of sense of like brand identity within that scene. Um, and we just got lucky that we were kind of in the stream at that time. But I just don't think that environment exists anymore. So I definitely would right. never say to a band that's the right, right way to go about it. <laughs> Interesting, right. So as you've seen streaming start to take over, Mm -hmm. You you would have obviously seen the the uh, you would have to have at least adapted the way you sold your physical media and uh, someone from looking on the outside in I see you guys do a lot of pre like limited uh, presses of vinyls and that kind of stuff too it's a really interesting way of diversifying the merch and keeping physical sales up yeah I mean um, vinyl is very much a collector's thing so you know your variants we we do one off variants we don't reprint certain colors or styles um just to create that sense of i guess fomo <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's not you know we, we try not to be predatory with it i think you know we just try and keep the balance we put it out when it makes sense to put out and yeah kind of stagger it a bit but um but yeah i mean to be honest like streaming like when it comes to streaming we kind of cooked that in the first place uh spotify only became a thing between our second and third albums and with our third album, we made the decision with our label, like we were talking about, you know, this thing that was coming up. And at that point, literally no one was paying for Spotify at all whatsoever. So there was absolute sweet nothing royalty wise. I was setting myself up for an F-bomb there, but. Um, yeah, I don't put a little E on the episode. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Eh? I got out of it. I dodged it. Um, but yeah, uh, it, we just thought, oh, well, let's trial just like delaying the release. So like, put it on physical media first. And then I think it was like a month later, we'd put it up or like two weeks later, we we're going to put yeah. it on streaming. Um, and that was to kind of try and drive physical sales because I mean, that's what at that stage, I wouldn't say that it was driving, like that was the driving metric behind what was successful or not, but it was definitely and it's still one that held weight if you could actually move a certain number of physical copies of the CD. Yeah, um, so we kind of tried to do that and it bit us in the ass. Like basically everyone that wanted to listen on Spotify or similar were just like, well, stuff it. I'm just not going to listen to it, period. I'm not going to buy it. And then when it came out, it just, we had a, yeah, it kind of created this like false start and it took a little while for those kind of numbers to kind of start eking back up because I think yeah. we lost a lot of people that could have been interested at that point. It's just such an easy decision to make. I remember back then when Spotify first came out, it's mm. almost like it was subconsciously made that like a subconscious decision. I bought physical media. I love buying CDs back mm. in the day. I love supporting bands. But when Spotify came out and people said, oh, you can buy my album now, I would just go to Spotify and go, well, I can listen to it right now on Spotify. And I would just do that. I wouldn't think that I was negatively affecting the artist by doing that, or at least not contributing mm. to the artist by doing that. And I think it took... Uh, a couple of years later for people to start to really understand how to support mm. artists again, because artists started dropping yeah. their flight because they couldn't afford to do anything. So talking about the, the current, like the changing climate and adapting to it, 
Do you believe that most of the effort uh, for growing these days should be placed on social platforms or do you think it's privatized uh, communities and that type of thing as well? Um, I would say social media is prime for uh, promotion. And then, but then the only way to actually create a sustainable career is through your community, through building, through your, I guess, you know, I guess deeper options and your diversification of your business. Um, you know, obviously touring is still significantly the biggest draw card and the, le- the I guess, the least consumable one, in that, if that makes sense. Like, um, because music is infinitely reproducible in a digital format, then that makes music consumable. Um, whereas like a live experience isn't something that can be digitized the same way. Like even if, even through a high quality live stream, um, it's yeah. So it's like, that's still a really valuable commodity, in, but it's, I think we're realizing now that touring is off the table for the foreseeable future. Um, yeah. we're really having to do, kind of dig in on diversifying our business and looking into those other opportunities. So yeah, social media is very much about getting out there and, putting your information out there and reaching people. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the point of it's, it's, it's not what makes you successful. I think it's what gets right. you there, but it's not how you maintain it, you know, maintain yeah, your business and keep it, enable it for yourself. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's uh, capturing the interest. And then as they get closer toward connection, you build them toward mm-hmm. a privatized community because you guys are killing that. But I, I was going to get to that now, but we'll get to that in a second. You just made a point there about uh, with the changing music industries shift specifically with the coronavirus stuff going on a lot of a lot of the shows have stopped now a lot of bands have reacted to that by either not doing anything at all complaining about it and not doing anything at all or doing like acoustic like acoustic shows from their lounge room yeah you guys actually set up like an incredibly professional production that rivaled like a festival performance that made me stop in my feet and i'd watched a whole ton of it because it was just so high quality what was the thought process behind that and what was the response from it yeah Oh, that means a lot because I know how much you've got on your plate on any given day. So, <laughs> um, but no, I think um, the idea for us, we were talking about it. There's a company called e- um, Eves or EABS um, yep. based out of Canberra that are a live performance, um, like uh, what do you call it? Like a stage production yep. company. So they do audio equipment, lighting, all that sort of stuff. And their entire industry is just gone. Yeah, so true. Th- it was their quick thinking to kind of pivot like we're lucky that we that we have a good connection with them through mutual friends that work for them and with them um some of our touring crew actually work for them you know the rest of the, the year so um we kind of had that i guess mutual connection there at a personal level but we we're able to um kind of just yeah have a conversation with them and like look this is that this is what they're trying to do with like shifting towards a live streaming format and they've done that very quickly um, they've also got need help from ACT government and a couple of grants and stuff to actually shift their infrastructure. And so they've actually just yep. picked up a venue now and they're running live in your lounge as like a full website. Um, oh, so cool. it's, uh, it's their brand that we kind of bought into early, but the big thing about it was just getting ahead of the curve. Like we knew it was only a matter of time before everyone got on there with that. So it was one that, you know, we would certainly weren't the first to put on a hyper, you know, high quality, like full production live stream um, in the context. But I think, for, you know, for our community, for our world, I think we did manage to get in early and we're I'm talking about doing the next one already. So just trying That's to figure out how to, yeah, how to do it without, without getting into that conversation where you're trying to yeah. outdo yourself every time over, always raising the bar. So we're figuring out sure. how to do it. With sure, sure, yeah. yeah. 
without jumping the without jumping too far ahead. Yeah, because I because I was like, I had assumed that it was just an idea of like, so from the band's perspective, like how do we just do it? I didn't think that from the audiovisual company that they also were uh, in the same position. So it was a mutually beneficial arrangement. I feel like yeah. that's a really big point is to think if you're in this position, who else is too? So you can create a mutually uh, beneficial setup that can actually help both of you because yeah, I know sure. about that brand now and like I, everyone on the stream mm -hmm. did too and like it, it the videos were awesome too so it's like and just for like a leveraging thing it's not like you guys are performing from like over Skype from all the different corners of the world you are in at that time you, you did a live stream together and that's just uh something that high quality was like bringing the concert to the lounge room which is I think a lot yeah. of people try to do but it's very seldom executed in the way that you guys did it mm. Yeah, we watched the uh, the TV one that I think Channel Nine did here in Australia a couple of days ago. It was such a, it was such a mishmash of like genuine good quality performances and some stuff that was clearly pre-recorded and edited and backtracked and right. I don't know that it, it didn't feel very live. A lot of it, some yeah. of it did, but it not in a good way. It didn't feel yeah. live. It just felt like so it felt live but not professional and or it was the other way around. It was professional but it didn't feel live. It they just yeah have kind of. So, yeah, we embraced it and, you know, once and all, it was definitely a strange experience and a lot we learned from it to do better next time. But, um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and we really enjoyed being able to do it. And the crew was great. Um, the response was great. And, uh, yeah, you know, we took donations for the crew mainly, um, but also, you know, just to kind of help offset our festival that we just lost for that weekend. And, um, yeah, yeah right. you know, people were really generous and got behind it. So. I think it just comes down to yeah, having that message and having that sense of honesty. I think as a band, you don't, you never want to be a charity case, but yeah. um, you know, still not, don't be afraid to kind of frame things and like, hey, you know, we need to support and people are generous in that sort of thing. So it's been yeah, um, this is we got really lucky. We have some great fans. Yeah, oh, of course. And speaking of those fans, you have recently. Uh, really tried to refine the concept of the privatized community you guys are doing, uh, shifting to an interesting take on the Patreon model that's supported more on uh, loyalty based on buying your way in, which I th we both agree is a fantastic model. Uh, can you go into a little bit about that and how you're actually rewarding sure. people supporting you over long term? Yeah, well, I mean, um, we've seen a lot of bands use Patreon. Um, I remember when Patreon first came out, the bands that kind of took it up first got so much heat from, you know, I guess the... Uh, what do you call it? Like the the furrowed brow skeptics of the internet, You're just like, <laughs> yeah, why should yeah. I pay for that just to hang out with the band? I shouldn't have to pay for friendship. Like it's just that that kind of sense of entitlement. And there was a lot of, I guess, bad juju around it when it first came right. out. Um, well, you said before you don't want to be a charity case, and it, it exactly. did kind of read that way in the beginning. Exactly, and I think the the trouble is like when you've got a finite amount of time you get caught into that kind of supply and demand and setting arbitrary prices. So if you, if, to go out and have dinner with the band, like what's that worth? Mm. Like yeah. how do you put a number on that? Like we are just regular people that just have a really cool job mm. that we get to express ourselves through. Like that's, you know what I mean? It's such a hard question to answer and one that I've never felt comfortable with, like even with our own kind of VIP tour tickets that we've done in the past, we've always, you know, tried to make them either cheap as possible for, as much as possible or like built it around like a couple of like merch items and experience things right and just getting to you know meet do a meet and greet before us before a show that was just kind of a, almost an extra thing that's for us mm. that wasn't what people should be paying for we what we wanted to charge people for so yeah um i think we've kind of just taken that methodology and that principle um across to like a digital space so we've um but yeah coming back to the loyalty thing um 
you know, we wanted to reward sticking around for the long haul rather than just how good your job is. So we've seen bands with like 20, 30, 50, 60, $80 monthly price points. And don't get me wrong, there are super fans of ours that would happily pay that, but I think there's such a big expectation of what that entails. Yeah. Um, so I would rather have a thousand fans paying five dollars each than five pan- fans paying a thousand dollars each. Yeah. Um, and then create meaningful content that resonates with them because at the end of the day, they're going to be a louder voice promoting us in their own communities and their own circles. Yeah. Um, than those five fans, like those thousand people, are going to reach more people. So it became just about, um, you know, trying to get as many people. Over, like you know setting as low a threshold as possible that we can deliver like a basic sort of set of perks but we also didn't want to put in like you know this 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 and this is what we're going to deliver for x amount per month it was just simply hey you're supporting us and we're going to reward things going on yes. an ongoing basis based on how long you've been stuck around so you know we have uh, our current tiers are two dollars a month and five dollars a month like the thresholds but i mean people could pay as much or as little as they want we're going to be adding a ten dollar one but literally it's going to be no different than the $5 one, except for the fact that you get perks straight away instead of having to wait three months. So, um, you know, for people that (laughs) need that instant gratification. Um, But it just means, you know what I mean, people stuck around for a bit and kind of, you know, aren't just using it just to get in the door and then peace out real quick as well. Like, and there'll, there'll be people that abuse any sort of system, but for us, just setting that threshold low meant that it was reasonably accessible for most people because we didn't want to be the only band that someone supports because we would love to see this model flourish and actually enable other bands to do it. And so yeah. when there's four bands, five bands that you love all doing the same thing, then you know what I mean? 20, 25 bucks a month spread between five bands that you love rather than paying 30 bucks a month on one. It just that that to us felt a bit more ethically to me felt more ethically, um, fair you know what i mean yeah we've been able to do some really cool stuff already there's some great free services we can use um and yeah we're starting to look into a couple of like physical things and a couple of like you know digital free to deliver and um you know integrating that into our model so for the live streams even doing um you know doing it live but then not having the replay infinitely watchable for free like it's basically if you tune in for live then it's free um but if you don't tune in live if you miss it then you know it's I mean, hell, it's two bucks to sign up and you'll get free access instantly. So, yeah, I mean, right. it's, you know, that in itself is not a big deal. No, not at all. And I feel like bands, a lot of, well, from my research at least, I've found that a lot of music artists don't understand that they're establishing cultures within their fan base when they do th- make decisions like this. So you see artists like, I don't know, I'm just throwing someone off the top of my head. This is live voice because I, prob- I don't know if he'd do this, <laughs> but if you had someone like Justin Bieber, right? And if he created a Patreon for some reason and there could be a thousand dollar premium tier and he might not deliver that much content, that type of thing turns it into a competitive type culture where like people like I'm a bigger fan than you I'm a bigger fan than you and it just it doesn't Mm. there's no support in that type of model now he might have done something completely different I'm just using an example but with you guys doing it this way where it's like um stretching it out to bring as many people in and building the community saying it's only a couple of dollars and it's not Mm. the fact that we want the money it's the fact that the more people we bring in the more support we get so ironically it is about the money but it's not because we're trying to Mm. bleed you of money I feel like that's when it get it's going to build it's going to build stronger community over time is get a, a bigger culture brewing so that you guys can build what it means to be a hands like houses fan so when people join the houses community that's what it's called right 
Yeah, how's those? <laughs> Great name. I just didn't want to kind of say anything. Like, that's not what it's called. No, no. Uh, but I thought it was. Like, when they when they become a house, so to speak, that's where they know what they're actually joining for, and it becomes accessible for everyone. And the re- mm-hmm. the return on the value is is far exceeded by the the couple of dollars they give each month. Yeah. But it's rewarded just as it's it's rewards you just as much as it mm-hmm. takes to make it. You know what I mean? So, so it yeah. sounds like a really mutually beneficial thing by thinking of the future rather than trying to think of how to cash now. You know? Yeah. And I, thought, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much uh, prerequisite knowledge is expected with listening to this podcast, but, um, you know, look, looking at the listen path thing, for example, um, one thing we wanted to do was like to really reinforce and that connection from like a captive or, you know, converted follower, um, sorry, captive or converted fan over to a cult fan um, mm-hmm. is about that emotional connection and that feeling of uh, just feeling valued. You know, yes. when they feel personally valued, that's a huge like a huge step up to jump over that last hurdle into that cult audience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, by setting the price low, you set the expectations low and then you can over deliver like 100%. two, three, four fold. And you actually end up with a much more emotionally invested fan. And we've seen that already. Like, you know, we've got, I think we've got 130 as of this morning, um, which, you know, at $5 a month, that's not that much collectively across the board. But, but I mean, we barely promoted this, like literally yeah. through Live in Your Lounge, which I think we had, you know, five, I think uh, we've ended up with about 10,000 people, like 10,000 unique views that we could register um, right. on the night, including like uh, across the two platforms and plus the 24 hour replay. So that's not, yeah. really, not really that many. So it's actually not a bad conversion rate with having that many people sign up for something that we mentioned twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know so what, I mean? what you're doing is you're setting the framework early so that you can scale it accordingly. But exactly. um yeah, you're 100% right. That sounds really good because a churn rate is a real thing in any subscription service, which means the amount of people leaving each month, you could charge $10 a month and someone stays around for one month because they're like, ah, oh, I didn't get that much value out of, the, out of this. Or it can be $3 a month and they stay around for, mm. for 10 months because yeah. it's or even longer and you make so much more money in the long run by pricing cheaper because a lot of people go, well, $10 is more than three. But if people don't feel like the value is outweighed by what they're paying, they're going to leave next month. Yeah. There was a bit of metrics behind that, um, and this is kind of one thing I've had to like. To be honest, I had to like convince the rest of the band that it was a good idea as well, because um, this is a model that you and I even worked on with uh, with a previous project. We we're trying to get off the ground, um, but pitching it to the band, I said, "Look at it this way: five dollars a month times twelve months—that's sixty dollars a year, right? If we tour, like the majority of our income is touring, and in Australia in particular, and when we do a tour, if we do a tour like every twelve months." And our ticket price generally works out to about 50 bucks, give or take. So at the end of the day, if they sign up for this for the year or they come see us at a show once a year, that's the same amount of money. And mm. obviously we've got to deliver on that. But I mean, that's if that's what they pay for a ticket in a year, then how is that? How is this not a viable option with this yeah. threshold? Like it becomes like the, the hurdle becomes not so much what you're delivering, but actually how you market it to people and how you message it to people and how you create that experience and that perception of that experience. So we've got a bit of work to do in marketing it the right way. But I think that, you know, in terms of the actual dollar value and the money, like if you can deliver a a concert's worth, like, you know, a concert's worth of valuable content through a year, then that's just as valuable as that person coming to a show. Yeah, and these people who buy these Patreon subscriptions are probably going to come to a show anyway. So essentially, exactly. you've, you've doubled potential income off these type of people. When you look at a cost per customer yeah. marketing terms, that's actually really good. Mm-hmm. Man, 
I tell you, this is absolutely flown by, so we're going to have to try to wrap yeah. up now. We could talk about it all day. I guarantee we're going to get multiple episodes so we can dive into this more. See you guys soon for round two. Yeah, that's true. Part, part two. Like for part two, right? Is that everyone saying on social media? But thanks so much, dude. It was so good to have you on, and it was so good to chat about this kind of stuff. I'm sure there's like a ton of value here for like anyone looking to set up communities and that. Take it from Trent. And I'm, you're active in our Facebook group too, so if you have any questions, write it in there, and I'm sure he'll get back to you with what a good answer. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the I Am Northbound podcast. I hope you loved it. Why not check out another episode? I'm sure you can find one right below wherever you found this one. But before you do, make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. And it would mean the world to me if you could leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on right now. It helps me grow the podcast more than you know. And that way I can help more music artists change lives with their music too.